All right, welcome back to another episode of Theology Applied. I am your host, Pastor Joel Webin with Right Response Ministries. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the Psalms. I have Shane Heilman. He is the leader and founder of the Psalms Project, taking all of the 150 Psalms and putting them to music, um, keeping to the integrity of the structure, um, of course, the lyrics, the words of each of these Psalms inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's gotten through the first 46 Psalms now. Um, and by God's grace, he hopes to finish all 150. So we talk about his project. We talk about the importance of Christians singing, not just hymns, uh, not just good modern day worship, but singing psalms. Psalms shape us. One of the reasons why a lot of Christians are offended with strong, uh, seemingly harsh preaching is because they don't know the psalms. If they knew the psalms, they would probably think that guys like John MacArthur and Vody Bauckham, that their preaching was actually a little soft. Maybe could uh, use a little bit, uh, a little bit more strength, a little bit more uh, calling sin, uh, calling it out. Uh, fast and hard, blatantly, as it really is. So all that being said, we talk about Psalms discipling us, shaping us. We talk about imprecatory Psalms, um, crying out for God to bring vengeance um, on the enemies of his people. And we also talk lastly about how the Psalms uh, shaped Shane personally in regards to his eschatology, uh, how the Psalms have just um, really just uh, confirmed a post-millennial hopeful eschatology. Um, an eschatology of victory. All that and more, stay tuned. There are very few things as important as fellowship. Taking the time to spread the gospel is our duty as Christians, but sharing the word over a warm cup of Squirrely Joe's coffee, now that is our passion. Like the caffeine coursing through their veins, Squirrely Joe's is energized by their calling and emboldened to model their relentless faith. Based in Olney, Illinois, their association with the endangered white squirrel isn't just a novelty. It's a reminder that His Majesty can appear in the most unexpected places, in a humble squirrel, through a chance conversation, and even in a simple cup of joe. Share coffee, serve humbly, live faithfully. Squirrely Joe's is owned and operated by Joe Morris, his wife Rachel, and their seven children. They believe in being a truly Christian business where Christ is in the DNA of the business. Joe also believes in living Coram Deo, that means before the face of God, in every aspect of life. Joe is also a pastor of a small Reformed church, and both Joe and Rachel are veterans of the U.S. Marine Corps and U.S. Army, respectively. They believe that Christians should be building a thoroughly Christian economy by doing business with other like-minded Christians. The coffee is also fantastic. So, don't delay. Visit squirrelyjoes.com to order your coffee today. Again, that's squirrelyjoes.com to order your coffee today. With the banking industry in another tailspin and the Fed ready to raise interest rates once again, many of you are probably asking, when does this madness stop? If you're interested in learning how to establish a family banking system outside of today's mainstream banking insanity, then schedule a call with our sponsors at Private Family Banking. 
there's a way for individuals, families, and businesses to put their hard-earned money to work continuously accruing compounding interest and then have those resources available as collateral for cash or for financing investments, businesses, college, and other major life expenditures without having to go to the big banks for loans. Income tax protected? safety from stock market losses, guaranteed rates of compounding interest, and the ability to store up an inheritance for your children's children and avoid the death tax on your estate. If this interests you, then email our friends at banking at privatefamilybanking.com. Again, that's banking at privatefamilybanking.com. Or you can give them a call at 830-339-9472. Again, that's 830-339-9472. Schedule your appointment today. Applying God's Word to every aspect of life. This is Theology Applied. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Theology Applied. I'm your host, Pastor Joel Webin, with Right Response Ministries. And in this particular episode, I'm privileged to have as a special guest, Shane Heilman. I think I'm pronouncing your last name right. Is that correct? That is correct. Great. Shane Heilman is uh, the leader and founder of The Psalm Project. Is that the name of your project? Uh, the Psalms Project. Yeah, this this the one's Psalms plural. Project. There's gotcha. a singular Lots. one out there, so we don't want to confuse oh, ourselves okay. with them. So, great. And you've got a a YouTube channel, and what what are all the various platforms where people can find what you're doing? Yeah, people can really find us on pretty much any platform online where you listen to music: Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, pretty much all of them. Great. All right. Well, let's go ahead and just dive right into it. I want to talk a little bit about eschatology and how you've kind of adopted the the post-mill take throughout your journey through the Psalms. Uh, we can get there in a moment, but first, uh, what, what made you want to start, you know, putting the Psalms to music and tell us about a little bit about the project and what, what you're doing? Sure. Yeah. Well, the idea came to me, I was on a mission trip in uh, somewhere in South Dakota. I live in South Dakota, by the way, uh, here in Rapid City. And I was on a mission trip on the uh, Rosebud Indian Reservation back in like 2006. And I was a worship leader at the time, kind of more like a fill-in worship leader at the church I was attending. So I would like, you know, worship, lead worship now and then, but had about 10 years experience worship, worship leading at that point. And suddenly I was just spending some time with the Lord, uh, reading, reading my Bible and uh, reading Psalm 1, I think it was, and just suddenly had this idea that, you know what, someone should put entire Psalms to music, to modern music in a way that's you know, modern and artistic, and that really, you know, tells the entire story of the entire psalm with music. Because, you know, of, of course, I was aware that putting the psalms to music wasn't in any way a new idea. You know, it's been done for centuries. Right. Christians have been putting the psalms to music. And of course, as most people know, they used to be songs. They were intended to be songs. And I think I was at a point in my worship leading where I was starting to just hunger for more of the word of God in worship uh, because of course I saw even back then in 2006, just kind of the, some of the watered down nature of a lot of modern worship songs. And every time I really saw the, you know, some more just impact in the congregation, just felt the weight of, of God's presence was when we read the word, I would just read Psalms out loud 
uh, to the congregation, people are like, wow, that was so deep. That was so good. I'm like, you know, it's, yeah, I'm just, re- just reading the word of God. And to the point where I was like, you know what, what if we sang it? What if we sang Psalms in worship? And I was thinking, well, of course, people have done lots of hymnals. There's lots of hymnals that, that um, sing the Psalms, which I think are wonderful. I think as many Psalms hymnals as we can, or as many Psalm versions as hymns as we can have, we should have. I think that's a really valuable resource. But I want to do something different. I really wanted to, um, you know, kind of not ca- not contain the Psalms just to a melody that repeats and repeats and repeats, no matter what's happening in the Psalm, but have the Psalm the song move into different movements depending on what's happening in the Psalm. You know, when David starts talking about, you know, this aspect, well, let's change the music here. Let's change the melody. Let's change the mood. Let's use all the instruments that we have at our disposal. And so that was kind of the idea I got was, what if we put entire Psalms to modern music? Like, and I, I would call the style we do like modern alt rock pop slash folk, okay. you know, kind of like um, that kind of style. Um, what if we did that so that when, so it kind of sounds a lot like, I'm hesitate to say this, but it might sound something like, you know, um, you know, a Hill song or a Chris Tomlin might do, but then you hear the lyrics and it's like, wow, this is different. You know what I mean? This is, this hits a little harder. This is a little saucier than what I was expecting to hear. So we want to do that modern arrangement to have that modern appeal with the music. But again, just entire psalms. So I didn't want to censor the psalms. I didn't want to edit the psalms. I didn't want to water down the psalms. Let's just sing it and let the word of God speak. And let's put the aid of music behind it uh, almost as a teaching aid because music can be a powerful teaching tool to help us remember, to help us experience the text. So this idea was forming my mind. I thought, this could be really cool. But then I realized really quick that this is going to be really, really hard, (laughs) you know, because there's a reason why no one's probably done it this way because you know, you run into Hebrew idioms and you run into cultural things. And like, how do I, how do I depict this in a way, you know, what translation do you use? Do you go word for word? So I was kind of wrestling through these things, but that was generally the idea is artistic arrangements, full arrangements, you know, orchestral rock arrangements, beautiful piano arrangements, putting the Psalms to music in a way that actually reflected what's going on in the text. So that was the original idea. And so I just started writing them. And uh, here I am 15 years later. This is this is what I do for a living now. And by God's wow. grace, we have tens of thousands of listeners. I'm not sure how many listeners exactly, but probably in the hundreds of thousands of listeners worldwide. Wow. So what are the main use of the Psalms? People who are listening, are they listening just in their private, uh, their private pleasure, their private, you know, worship or quiet time, or are, are they being used by churches and corporate worship? How are the Psalms being used? Yeah, I'd say my vision in the beginning was mostly for people for just listening enjoyment, you know, to listen casually while they were, you know, going about their day, you know, doing the dishes, you know, running, working out, um, just a way to just fill their lives with the word of God, you know, to listen to it, you know, while you're on the way and while you're doing this and while you're doing that. Um, I also, uh, it also does, uh, some of the Psalms do get used in churches. I do get, um, I do get checks from CCLI. So someone out there is using them in worship. Um, and again, when you're doing entire Psalms, I mean, some of them do get quite long, um, and structurally they can become really interesting because if you're not trying to hold to a strict, you know, verse chorus structure, or if you're not trying to hold to a strict, you know, hymnal type structure where every verse is the same melody regardless of what's happening in the text. 
uh, then they aren't quite as congregationally friendly, but there are quite a few that we've written and recorded that are congregationally friendly. Uh, so they do get sung in quite a few churches around the country. Um, and I do get, I get emails all the time, people saying, Hey, can we, can we play your lyric videos in our service? Cause we don't have a band or can we play the songs in worship? Um, and people ask, you know, for the chord sheets and all those things all the time. So I know they're being played out there, but, um, you know, we're not as, we're not as big as, uh, as Hillsong and Bethel yet. So. Right. We'll see. Um, so talk a little bit about the way that, uh, putting the Psalms to music has shaped you theologically. We can talk about eschatology, but it doesn't only have to be, uh, eschatology. I think about just even precatory Psalms. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, have you, have you gotten to any of those particular Psalms? Like, uh, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, breaking the teeth of the wicked, uh, pulling out their fangs like young lions. Uh, have you gotten to some of those? Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, you realize when you go through the Psalms, when you realize when you write a song, uh, you know, when you put an entire Psalm to music and don't edit or censor it, I mean, it's it's in almost all of them. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of Psalms where it has that imprecatory language. So, you know, it's something I had to get comfortable with and kind of reconcile and uh, pretty quickly, um, you know, along with the Psalms. So I think, yeah, as far as I'll start with the imprecatory Psalms, because you kind of, you know, touched on several things there. And I could probably talk for an hour about how the Psalms have shaped my theology. But starting with the imprecatory part, you know, of course, you run to these passages over and over again. And the first thing you have to think of is, well, is this, you know, is this really God's word? Or is this, you know, is this something that, okay, Jesus did away with this, and we really don't think this way anymore? And the more I studied, because I do study the Psalms intently, I am a, I don't know what you call it, a, a psalmophile, I don't know, but I, I do study them in several commentaries before I put them to music because we want to make sure that I'm understanding, you know, the entire context, uh, you know, what David's talking about here, um, kind of where he's going throughout the Psalm, also the background of the Psalm, because I think it's 14 of the Psalms actually tell us exactly what was happening in David's life when he wrote that Psalm, which is very instructional for seeing how David responded to particular situations. So um, as I was studying the Psalms, one thing I just ran into over and over again was that their imprecatory Psalms are, you know, they're obviously quoted in the New Testament. Like you think of like the most, um, you know, the most, some of the most would be considered the most vicious of the imprecatory Psalms, like Psalm 109 or Psalm 69, or some of these that really are, are difficult. I mean, quoted in the New Testament, first of all. Uh, second of all, one thing I also noticed is that in some of these imprecatory psalms, like in Psalm 35 or in Psalm 109, David actually loves for, loves and prays for his enemies in the same psalm. So, like, that's interesting, mm. right? Because in Psalm 35, he says, uh, you know, I, I, I wept and fasted for him like I would grieve for my own mother. You know, he's talking about his enemies, how he would love his enemies so I was starting to see that these really don't collide with Jesus' command to love our enemies. We actually see that example in David, in the Psalms, at the same time he's asking for justice to come upon his enemies. Mm-hmm. So the way I've thought it through is kind of like this, and maybe you can, you can um, you know, also answer and see if I'm, if I'm on track with this. But, you know, in David's time, especially, you know, there has to be a mechanism for justice, right? There has to be a check in an evil society on evil or else the whole thing just turns black. And, you know, in David's time, you know, he can't just, he can't just call the cops, you know, he can't just, um, 
you know, call upon, you know, some, you know, authorities to arrest these evil people. I mean, David kind of is, you know, that uh, authority, first of all. And he really has no other recourse than to ask God to intervene in these situations. So it's really, I see David calling for justice uh, because we have that same sensibility, right? When we see evil happening, there's a a deep desire in us as humans to see justice done, Uh, whether that's going to prison, whether that's the death penalty. uh, People want to see justice happen when they've been deeply wronged. I, I say it this way, like everybody's against the imprecatory Psalms, until, you know, somebody shoots up a school, you know, then we're fine with justice coming upon the shooter, right? So everyone agrees with them. I think we're just so insulated in our Western society that we've never been in a situation like David's, where the only recourse keeping us alive is God's mortal judgment on an enemy. So think about in those terms, help me realize this is not at all incompatible with the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament quotes them we see passages in the New Testament, like in Revelation, where the saints are calling out for judgment upon their enemies and upon the people who have persecuted them. Right. There, there's a straight line through the Old and New Testament of this, we can love our enemies while still desiring justice to be done on them at the same time. And I, and I just yeah. realized there's no contradiction there. So, but yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether I'm, how far off yeah. track I am there. No, 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 that's great, Shane. That's really helpful. I think... Um understanding, well, just understanding the difference between vengeance and justice and, uh, you know, man's vengeance versus God's justice or God's vengeance, you know, that Mm -hmm. vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And so, yeah, when, you know, it's the same as, well, no, I was going to give an illustration of discipline in the home with children, but it's, it's different than that, you know, because a lot of what we're doing in the home is, um, you know, disciplining a child is not punitive, but it's to shape and form and, um, instruct them, develop them. But, but yeah, with, with a criminal, um, wanting a criminal to come to justice is not at odds, uh, with loving them. And, and a lot of it has to do with our definition of love, you know, Mm -hmm. and, um, I can't remember which theologian it was, but somebody defined love and I'll, I'll get close. This won't be verbatim, but they said that, uh, that it was, uh, seeking the highest good of the person that you're loving, um, in tangible, practical ways. Um, and so, you know, love that's like First uh, John talks about or James talks about or Matthew, um, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, love that's tangible, it's physical. It doesn't just say, you know, go and be well-fed and warm and clothed, uh, but it actually does those things. Jesus says, you know, whatever you've done for the least of these, my brothers, you've done for me, uh, visiting in prison, clothing the naked. And you know, the key phrase there is whatever you've done for the least of these, my brothers. It's not just uh, whoever society or culture deems as being marginalized at, at any given time. Uh, but my brothers, you know, visiting someone in prison, what Jesus is getting at is um, visiting a Christian, a brother in Christ um, who's been wrongfully imprisoned, um, namely because they've preached Christ and have come underneath persecution for that. So visiting the brother in in Christ, who's wrongfully imprisoned and clothing the brother in Christ, who's naked, uh, not because he won't work, because Jesus doesn't contradict other portions of scripture, you know, so where Paul Mm -hmm. says, if a man's not willing to work, let him not eat. Um, So, you know, we're talking about, um, we're talking about people who are persecuted, someone who's naked, somebody who's thirsty, someone who's hungry, someone who's imprisoned. um, And all of this uh, would be through the language of oppression. Um, that it would be they're unjustly uh, naked and 
hungry and those kinds of things, not just because they're lazy. Uh, so Jesus isn't advocating for social welfare. Um, he's not, you know, he's not a socialist. He's not a communist. Um, but he's saying that we should love our brothers in Christ, fellow brothers in Christ who are being uh, mistreated. So all that being said, love is tangible. Love is physical. Love is practical. It's not just well-wishing. It's not just theoretical, spiritual, uh, saying kind things, but it's a willingness to actually lay down our lives and, and to take physical action uh, for the welfare of that individual. But then, you know, going back to that definition of the theologian um, who's defining biblical love, he said, you know, it's, it's tangible, practical, physical, literal love, um, but it's all with the aim of seeking the highest good of the individual. Um, and so, you know, in that sense of highest good, we're talking about eternal good. Um, and in terms of eternal good, uh, God's justice is good. Um, it's good for those who have been wronged. Um, most of God's justice that we see in the Old Testament is forms of restitution. So if some, you know, somebody committed theft, um, it was, you know, ultimately justice was making the, the wronged person whole. Um, so double restitution, or it depends, you know, in, in degrees of theft and what particularly took place, but it's making the person whole. Somebody lost something wrongfully, it's now being restored. In cases of capital punishment, um, restitution is impossible in this life. Um, Christ will make us whole in the life to come. He'll wipe away every tear. Uh, but in this life, you know, when uh, a loved one is murdered, uh, when a life is taken, the reason why capital punishment is the biblical position uh, that we see in the Noahic covenant, um, Noah, uh, you know, with Genesis chapter 9, and uh, we, we see that multiple places throughout Scripture. But the reason why that's right is not because uh, the criminal being executed actually makes uh, the the bereaved family whole. There's no way to make them whole. You can't bring that person back from death. But uh, I think it was Gary North who said that in capital punishment, what you're looking at is uh, there are certain crimes uh, where it's impossible in this life to make them whole. Therefore, uh, we need to, with a sense of urgency, transition the criminal to a higher court. Mm -hmm. so Absolutely. We yeah, kill them and, and we send them to God. Um, for his judgment. And so all that being said, but my point is just to say that it's all for the highest good of, you know, so it's making uh, the oppressed family that has suffered injustice whole, uh, but it's also for the good of the criminal. There, there have been many who have come to Christ by God's grace on death row. There have been many um, with, you know, uh, going to the gallows, you know, like many throughout church history that, um, that justice, God's justice is, the, the law is a tutor. And so when penalties are waived, we think that, oh, this is kindness, this is mercy, this is love. It gets conflated. Um, but, but really what, what we often are doing is uh, when we get rid of, when we're antinomian and get rid of certain penalties in our culture, um, we are discipling people. The, the government, uh, Romans 13, it, it, they are God's agents, God's avengers. Uh, they, they, so it's, they're bringing God's justice, um, and they're meant to do that. They're, they're called God's deacon, his servant, uh, avengers. To, they don't bear the, the sword for no reason. And so they're bringing God's wrath upon the evildoer. And when they don't, what it says to a society, uh, the presence of good laws and just equal penalties, weights and measures, um, proportional justice, swift justice, uh, impartial, blind justice. Uh, when that's done well, it disciples a culture, society, and it says, um, this is, is God's law. 
uh, and this is who God is. And, and it helps somebody have, uh, it doesn't save someone, but what it does is it helps someone feel a proper sense of guilt, which can then, with the work of the Holy Spirit, drive them to a savior, drive them to Christ. But when laws are, when, when a culture is lawless, uh, when justice is perverted and ripped back, not only those um, victims who injustice um, is perpetrated against, not only do they suffer, but even the criminal themselves is actually being um, perversely discipled by the God's what are supposed to be God's deacons, the civil magistrate, they're now perversely discipling a culture and a society, uh, telling them something that's a lie about who God is. This is not a law because it's not God's law because it's not who God is. And what it does is it actually removes um, a sense of moral culpability and guilt and conviction, and therefore it, it removes um, their their sense of need for Christ. Spurgeon said a person cannot appreciate the beauty of Christ unless they first come to see the necessity for Christ. When you remove law from society, you're removing justice. And when you remove justice and law and penalties for crimes, um, you are removing the necessity for Christ. And therefore you are obliterating any opportunity to see the beauty of Christ. And so back to that definition of highest good, um, you're actually not, not only is, is that not at odds with love, but to do anything other, uh, otherwise, other than justice, um, is the antithesis of love. If we're defining love in an eternal highest good sense, because mm. we're ultimately, um, we're damning people. So it's loving mm. to the criminal. It's loving to the family that was wronged. It's loving, you know, all, all across mm -hmm. the board. So we can love our enemies, pray for their salvation pray for conviction of the Holy Spirit, pray that God would save them by the power of the gospel, and pray that they, um, if they're at large, that they would be captured. If it's a, um, a capital crime, that they would be executed. We can, and none of those things are at odds. Yeah, actually, what you're saying about the law, you know, being a teacher and God's judgment, being a teacher to the rest of society. It's interesting. David says something very similar to that in Psalm 59. That was the last Psalm I just wrote was Psalm 59. And there's a really unique prayer in Psalm 59 where David actually says, okay, God, do not kill my enemies because mm. then people, he essentially says, then my people will forget the judgment. So he's basically actually asking God to make the judgment more drawn out for an instructional purpose on the people. Mm. So people will look at this and see this is not the way to go. You know, this is not the way to a prosperous society. So he actually asked for a certain kind of judgment that will be instructive on the people. Um, and I, that's another thing I love but about dam Psalms. But damning, what you're describing would be, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I don't have Psalm 51, uh, 59 right in front of me, but what I'm assuming is that it would be that, that God is allowing wicked people to do wicked, unjust things uh, because um, not a judgment to the wicked, but he's using the wicked as his rod and a judgment towards the righteous that are currently in sin against him, right? And so David's saying, as much as I want the wicked to come to justice, I recognize that this is uh, your discipline on your people, 
corporately, collectively, um, in general, um, you're, you're utilizing this rod of the, the, the wicked, just like God would use the Assyrians to punish Israel, you know, or Egypt. And, and on one hand, it's like, God, bring the Assyrians to justice. And eventually he did when the fullness of their, their iniquity, you know, when, when uh, their iniquity was full, uh, God brought his wrath um, up, upon those, those nations. Um, but in the meantime, it's like, on the one hand, yes, I want justice to come to the wicked, but I also see that in your providence, in your sovereign will, um, not just your moral will, but in the sovereign will of God, uh, you are using uh, the wicked as your instrument, as your tool uh, to judge the righteous who are currently in apostasy, currently uh, being faithless. And so so in that, I feel that. I'll, I'll just say this real quick and then right back to you, but I feel that as an American citizen. I feel like on the one hand, um, when I think of Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden, um, Chuck Schumer, uh, break their teeth, oh God. Uh, I pray that God would break their teeth, or as other Psalms say, that he would take the heads of their babies and bash them upon the rocks. And that's scripture, and I feel that, and I pray that. And in the same breath, I also pray, um, God do whatever it takes to bring our nation to repentance, because I'm not interested in a mere conservative political resurgence where we get back to the good old days of the 1980s with more conservative economic policies and blah, blah, no, thank you. That, that's what got us here. It'll just, it'll just be a moment. That's just a slower walk to hell. I, I'm not interested in, in the nation just walking a little bit slower to the pits of hell. Um, I don't want a mere conservative resurgence. I want a distinctly Christian reformation and revival. And uh, one of the ways that God may see fit to bring that about, God is at his disposal to use multiple different providences and tools. Um, but one of the ways that God may bring about revival in our nation, if he chooses to bring it about at all, um, is through immense suffering and persecution and evil actually getting worse before it gets better and us coming to our senses like the prodigal son i always think one of the 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 worst things that could have happened to him when it says he was in a far off distant land a famine came to the land he was starving he was hungry he got a, a you know deadbeat job feeding pigs uh, and he was looking at the pods that were used to feed the pigs and and the pods looked pig food started looking good to him and the text goes on it says and no one gave him anything and then the very next words mm. in the text are and he came to his senses one mm. of the things that inhibits um, estranged apostatized sons of god who are are the righteous in one category but currently apostatizing in another uh, currently underneath god's fatherly displeasure um, that need need to repent one of the things that inhibits um, repentance is uh is handouts um one of the things that inhibits repentance is sparing the rod. And God says that even to human fathers, that he who spares the rod hates, hates his son. It's not loving to spare the rod. It's actually hatred to spare the rod. So mm -hmm. God in one breath, so we can pray that. I think, And none of this is contradicting. We can, we can pray that in God's moral will, that he would bring uh, justice um, and that it would be as swift as he sees, um, as he sees fit, justice to the wicked. Um, and and then at, and break their teeth and and yet we can also pray in the same breath uh, but god in your sovereign will you do all things well you're infinitely wise um we pray that you would bring justice to the wicked in your moral will and yet not 
not uh, in a way that would contradict your sovereign will as you undoubtedly are using the wicked as a, an instrument in your providence uh, for bringing the righteous to their knees so that we uh, so that we're not content with mere conservative resurgences, um, but we are forced um, to cry out for a Christian revival and to actually not just turn back to republicanism, uh, but actually turn back to a person, not just principles, but a person whose name is Jesus and that we would call upon him by name. And persecution is one of the ways that God produces that kind of repentance that leads towards a much deeper healing, right? Not just the false prophets, you've healed the wounds of my people lightly, but saying peace, peace when there is no peace, but a deep, profound healing of our nation and a healing of the church. Um, and judgment mm -hmm. begins with the house of God. So we have all mm -hmm. this scripture and all that to be able to say that, that both things are true. It's not one or the other. Both things are true. Bring justice to the wicked. They really are wicked. They kill babies. Uh, they mutilate uh, children, um, you know, chemically castrating boys. I mean, they're, they're wicked, wicked, wicked people. Um, and yet, in the very same breath, uh, we got here in large part because of the church's abdicating of its responsibility, its prophetic role, uh, because of cowardice, because of gluttony, because of complacency because of greed because of all that you know the, the the fear of man if nothing else and uh and the and, and we need uh the the loving heart albeit but loving discipline of our father uh to to bring us back to him and so all, yeah all those things can be true absolutely yeah and um yeah i actually hadn't thought about that with psalm 59 that it very well could be that david's asking for this specific kind of judgment on his enemies to be just that, to kind of, you know, let them hang around longer for the, perhaps the discipline of his people. Um, it, in the text, the way I, the way I took it was that it was more so like, let their, let their, instead of just killing them right away, let their decline be, be more slow and dramatic so that, you know, mm. there's more of a, so it's more of like an illustrative, like, look what happens when you, you cross the line. Um, so and that may it, absolutely it, be true of that particular song. Everything that I right. said in principle is true, but it may not be true of, like I said, of Psalm 59. Right. But but what you're saying in principle is also true, if not in Psalm 59, which I would have to look at, it's certainly true of Pharaoh, right? It says, mm -hmm. for this purpose, I raised him up, Romans 9, commentating on, you know, on yep. the Exodus. But you think of Pharaoh and it's like the typical guy, I mean, it's like one, two, maybe three plagues and you're going to tap, right? I'm going to tap out. That's mm -hmm. like an arm bar, a rear naked <laughs> choke, you know, like, uh, you know, like yeah. three different, you know, submission moves all at once. It's like your arm's broken, your face is pummeled. It's like, yeah, you, you tap. It was a supernatural sovereign hardening of Pharaoh's heart yes. that, that caused him to, to not submit. And why? Um, Paul says, like, I've raised him up so that my power might be displayed. Like God wanted to show off to his people how mm -hmm. he didn't want to just show his people that he was powerful enough to do three plagues. He wanted to show him 10 plus the parting of the Red Sea. And, and God, and this is the funny thing, when, when you're an infinitely powerful being and you want to show off your infinite power, 
to your people against your enemies, but you're infinitely powerful, then you have to use some of your own infinite power to prop up your puny enemies just so you can show them the right and the left. Because otherwise, they're just going to go down with the right and you'll never get it to show off that left hook. So so all that means that that could absolutely be, yeah. you know, Psalm 59, but that's certainly a biblical principle that we find elsewhere, if, if nowhere else, Egypt and Pharaoh. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, that's one thing I, I didn't even mention about the imprecatory Psalms. And uh, yeah, I feel like we could talk like for four hours just about the imprecatory Psalms, mm-hmm. you know, and just how cool. interesting that theology is. But one thing I love about the Psalms is that David is not taking justice into his own, you know, human, frail, imperfect hands. He is calling on God's perfect, holy right. justice. Uh, and he's, he's, really relying on that. We see that the way he dealt with Saul, right? He could have taken that into his own hands several times, but he leaves it to God. He leaves it to God, which, you know, again, I would argue is a, is a far more righteous ethic than what we see typically from man, which is typically, you know, vindictiveness. And we see, um, you know, like I said, petty revenge. So the Psalms don't show us a petty revenge. The Psalms show us a really profound uh, trust in the sovereignty of God in the face of evil that's most of us probably haven't even encountered right face to face yep absolutely well let's go ahead and continue now and and let's talk a little bit about you know what i mentioned earlier your eschatological development uh with the psalms i think you told me offline as we were preparing a little bit for this interview that um that you've embraced post-millennial eschatology and that the psalms were a part of of um of influencing you in that direction. Can you share that with us? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, for a long period of my Christian journey, I probably would have called myself uh, a pan-millennialist. Didn't really study eschatology a whole lot until maybe about four or five years ago. It was kind of always on my, it was kind of always on deck for me. Like, yeah, I'll get to eschatology someday. You know what I mean? But um, basically, you know, Jesus is coming back. We got to be ready. Like, who cares about the details was kind of my viewpoint. And I think that really changed. I was actually uh, mowing my lawn back in like, I don't know, 2018, 2017, because uh, I was listening to a Jeff Durbin sermon. I can't remember how I started to listen to Jeff Durbin, but, and he started talking about the uh, Jesus coming in judgment. And he started talking about how that was him coming in judgment on Jerusalem in AD 70. So he was talking about Matthew 24 as being passed. And I was like, what is he talking about? Like, I've never right. heard anything right. like this before. And I'd always been troubled by that verse in Matthew 24, Matthew 24, 34. Um, uh, this generation shall not pass away till all these things take place. And, you know, C.S. Lewis calls it the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. And I had never heard a good explanation for it ever. Uh, whenever I came across that verse, you know, I would look at a commentary and I actually, actually realized I had a Schofield Bible. I actually bought one at some point, not really knowing what it eschatologically meant, but... You know, I look at that, it would say, you know, it's talking about the Jewish race or whatever. And just all of these explanations just, they just did not work. They did not work. And so when I heard that, it kind of sent me into this like research uh, mode where I was like, okay, I got to investigate this view because I don't think Jeff Durbin's a heretic, but maybe he is. So let's, let's investigate this and see where it goes. And that led to me listening to, you know, Ken Gentry and started listening to uh, Gary DeMar um, and, uh, then I read his book, Last Day's Madness. Um, not sure what to think of the current Gary DeMar situation, so I just won't comment on that. But, um, yeah. but I read Last Day's Madness, and that was the book that really helped me to see that actually I think this is the most eschatologically sound 
or at the most exegetically, I should say, sound position I've ever read. Because as I've gone through my Christian life, I was I was raised Catholic and then became a Christian at uh, 17 and kind of started my journey there, just, you know, learning, you know, almost from scratch, I guess I could say. And so whenever I came across an issue like baptism or eschatology, what I would discover, or, or Calvinism even, what I would discover is, okay, here's these two positions. And what I kind of tended to see, and of course, you know, some people get mad at me for this, but it always seemed like one position was very exegetically precise or exegetically, um, I guess, exegetically grounded, you know, I guess. And the other wow. one always seemed to have a lot of emotion involved. Like, for example, the Calvinist Arminian thing. I could not win an argument against a Calvinist. I just couldn't. Um, exegetically, I couldn't, I couldn't get around it. And I watched the Arminians argue and it was, it was honestly, it was a lot more, you know, emotion and philosophy than it was ex exegesis. So that kind of rang off my alarm bells and I was like, okay, this is probably the one. And so whenever I come across these issues, I always say, okay, which one, which debater argues exegetically and which one argues, you know, with a lot more, you know, emotion and a lot more, you know, of that kind of thing. And even the same thing in baptism, I'm going to make Presbyterians mad here, but I actually went to a, I, I, I watched a course on covenant theology with Ligon Duncan, started getting to covenant theology. And then he got to the point where he was, you know, going to teach on infant baptism. And at that point I was kind of, you know, open to it. I was like, okay, convince me, you know, if that's the position, like I'll listen and, you know, and then I heard the lesson and I was like, ah, it's not convincing. So then I watched debates with, you know, James White and, um, you know, Greg Strawbridge, and I Strawbridge, watched the debate yeah. with uh, Sproul, and I also watched his de James White's debate with the other um, gentleman, I can't remember his name right now, and then uh, Sproul and MacArthur. And watching all three, I was like, the Baptists seem to be really clinging to exegesis here, and a lot of what I heard from the, uh, the infant baptism argument was, you know, like, well, how can you call your kids Christians, and how can they say Jesus loves you? And it was a lot more like, kind of like, almost like kind of a almost emotional argumentation. Um, so yeah. I was kind of like, yeah, I'm kind of sticking with the Baptist side. Sorry guys. Um, that kind of came up also a little bit with, uh, I don't know if you saw, but on the Canon app, which is a fantastic product for anybody who doesn't have it, the, the Canon plus app, lots of material, seven ninety nine a month. It's a good deal. Um, it's better than Netflix. It's not just, Oh, they do good work. They're Christians. And so it's worthy of support. It actually, the value, not only are you supporting, you know, something that's Christian and a ministry, but, um, the value is better than just about any streaming device that I, I've come across. So anyways, that's my plug for them. They don't pay me, but it's true. So I'll, mm -hmm. I'll give them the credit that they deserve on that app. There was a debate on pedo baptism, which, you know, it was, you can't debate pedo baptism, you know, or I'm sorry, pedo communionism. And it, you can't debate that without pedo baptism. So, you know, the, the two things both uh, got addressed, but it was an informal, charitable, you know, kind of um, debate between Wilson and uh, James White. But even Wilson, who I love and who I think handles the scripture very, very well, um, one of his strongest arguments was, you know, it was, uh, not exegesis, but it was a story, you know, of his grandson and feeling included when he first got to take the Lord's Supper and tapping his head, you know, and tapping his, you know, his family members' heads and saying, we're all part of the same community. And James, you know, his personality, he just, Dr. White just wouldn't, you know, as sweet of a story as it is. And you could like tell like the audience was like, yeah, this is awesome. And, you know, James White is outnumbered because he's in Moscow doing this. Um, and, uh, but he just wouldn't, he wouldn't give an inch. He was like, yeah, 
sorry, sweet story, but <laughs> you know, yeah. and he just begins to dismantle it. So I, mm-hmm. I understand, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Go ahead. And so eschatology was largely the same thing. Uh, when I read Gary DeMar's book, I was thinking like, that's pretty good exegesis. Like that's, those are good arguments, you know? And when he says, you know, when he's interpreting a passage, Jesus says here, he goes to the Old Testament and shows you four examples that mean exactly what Gary DeMar says they would mean. And you're like, okay, like this is starting to check out. Um, and then when I would start to finally have conversations uh, with folks about it, um, yeah, I mean, exegetically, I felt really solid and confident. And I found that a lot of the other arguments were, you know, just kind of, you know, emotional or just came from a lack of understanding of the post-millennial position. So, like, I, I'm always going to side where I feel like I would win the exegetical argument. Um, that's just kind of how right. I feel. And so, because... I'm not going to take a position if I'm going to lose, you know, if I'm going to, if I'm going to argue it and lose, why would I take that position? Cause you're probably right if I'm going to lose. So that's kind of what was, I just, as the more I researched it, the more it just seemed to check out. And then it's kind of like, once you see something, you can't unsee it. Once right. I saw God's sovereignty, once I saw Calvinism, once I saw post-millennialism and now you're studying the Psalms, I mean, come on. I mean, God's sovereignty is all over the Psalms. You could not unsee it. And then post-millennialism is all over the Psalms. You cannot unsee it once you kind of have that biblical perspective. And so, yeah, yeah, then it's just started to reinforce everything I was learning because I'd read these Psalms and the Psalms do not at all, uh, to my knowledge, not even ever. I mean, they, they do not at all have this idea that we lose down here. That is just not the Psalms at all. The the typical psalm pattern is David is in some really you know stressful or dangerous situation. He calls out to God. He lays out his complaint before God in detail. He says what's going on, which I think is really helpful in our prayers to you know articulate to God what's happening. It helps us process the situation. And after doing that, it's almost like David realizes, wait a second, this isn't much of a threat because you're God over this, you're God over that. God is my helper. Here's your covenant promises. He kind of goes to the section of confidence where he's Mm -hmm. saying, no, this is the truth. So first David kind of lays out his request. Then he lays out his complaint and the situation. And after that, he goes into theology. He says, no, you're God over this. You're God over that. I know this is true. I know that's true. You promised this. You promised that. And then by the end of the Psalm, David is practically celebrating the outcome before it happens. He's saying, wow. okay, when, when you deliver me, I'm going to pray. Here's what I'm going to do after you deliver me. You know, he's, he's, he's basically praising God for the deliverance God is going to bring. Like, not 4,000 years from now, like right here and now in my life. Right. Um, and the Psalms don't at all treat the wicked like they're going to prosper. I mean, David's mm. complaint is often like, God, uh, these guys are doing this. You said that this wouldn't prosper, and you said that I would prosper if I follow in your ways, so what gives? Like, mm-hmm. fix this. And then near the end of the psalm, he realizes that's exactly what's going to happen. God's going to bring judgment on the wicked here and now. He's going to give David victory here and now. And David celebrates and worships according to the deliverance that is certainly coming very, very, very soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so David definitely had this eschatology of victory in the here and now. He, he totally yeah. expected that because that was the covenant that God, that Israel, that God made with Israel. He said, you know, if you walk in my ways, like David did for most of his life, then I'm going to be with you. I'm going to deliver you. The enemies are going to flee from you. 
and the enemies aren't going to prosper. And so David just trusted that, walked in that, and he saw the fruits of it. So there's right. this eschatology of victory all over the Psalms. And I could go through so many passages that where it talks about God, not only as the God of Israel, but he's the God of all the nations. Right. Right. No, that's good. Yeah. Uh, I want to pick up on something you said just for a moment. You said, you know, David recognizes that, um, that he's in a covenant. And I think, you know, to just for a moment to play the devil's advocate, some people would, you know, maybe push back and say, well, yeah, uh, David expected victory because he was a king and he was a type of Christ, the king. Um, and you know, he, yeah, he was in a covenant, but it's not the covenant that we're in, you know, the Davidic covenant was different than the new covenant covenant. And I, I think, you know, again, that just kind of gets into people's ignorance, uh, where they need to brush up a little bit more on their covenant theology, not understanding the covenant of redemption, the oldest chronologically oldest covenant that was made in the councils of eternity and eternity past between father and son by the Holy spirit, um, where, you know, the father promises, um, to, to provide for the son a pure and spotless bride and, and uh, who's dressed and adorned, who's radiant. Uh, she's not scrawny. She's not beaten. She's not bruised. Um, and she's not also adulterous. Um, she's not weak. She's not um, small. Um, but but she's she's full and uh, beautiful and verdant and you know and so and the son also promises to um, to hand back to his father a people um, purchased um, by his blood for the father's eternal glory to the praise of his glorious grace um, all these things and and so anyways with the covenant of redemption and and you know the new covenant um, both uh, as a 1689 federalist believing that those are synonymous. Uh, the, the covenant of redemption made in eternity path, past and then actualized in the new covenant that saves retroactively saints in the Old Testament and all those going forward. Um, again, it is a kingly cov covenant. Christ is is king um, and he's the head of, of the church, which is his body. Um, and Christ is not losing. Uh, he, he died to die no more. He died once. Um, for sin. Um, he, is, he is not um, forever. He is, he is not dying again and again and again and again. Um, we, we focus so much on um, the crucifixion of Jesus, but we sometimes minimize uh, the resurrection, uh, that, that there is a resurrection and not only a resurrection, but an ascension in glory uh, to the right hand of the Father, um, that the mustard seed is growing into a great tree, that the Daniel 2 stone cut by no human hands is uh, shattering the kingdoms of this world. And it is progressively, it's not just happening in a moment. That's the other thing that really sold me was um, the language that we find in the Old Testament and in the New, it's not, uh, it's not sudden and cataclysmic. Um, mm -hmm. Instead, it's, it's gradual yes. um, and, and, um, and intentional. It's uh, precise and deliberate and planned and gradual. It's progressive. And so, you know, shattering the kingdoms of this world, uh, this stone cut by no human hands, but then slowly it grows um, into a mountain that fills the whole earth, you know, where the mustard seed works works through. There's a process, but progressively it, you know, um, it eventually grows into a, a great tree that's branches cover the whole face of the earth. The beasts of the earth find shade, you know, the birds uh, of the air find rest in its branches. And, and then the leaven eventually leavens the whole batch of dough. All of these things are... Um, progressive and they and they take time and so um, all that being said this idea of Jesus um, uh, sealing his victory 
uh, through his earthly ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, uh, but then, but then him um, actually applying his victory, uh, his his victory sealed, but then his victory being realized progressively, uh, in the same way that David was anointed king, but then he progressively took over the king, you know, came into the kingship. Then you know, the, there's a division within the nation between David and Saul. He gets you know his house in order, and then begins to push back uh, the territories of all his enemies and, and gains triumph. And there are battles that are lost, um, but the war ultimately is is um, a win. It's a victory. And so the moments of loss, but it's you know it's one step forward, it's two steps, or one step backward, two steps forward, and maybe ten steps backward in a moment. You know, for multiple generations, can you know consecutive, but then it's twenty steps forward. And and you know you, you look at that, and you know everyone's you know, the world is getting worse and worse. And it goes back to the emotive argumentation that you talked about it, the newspaper mm-hmm. exegesis instead of biblical exegesis. And it's like, what do you mean the world's getting worse and worse? I I am willing to concede um, that our particular corner of the world, namely Western civilization, has been getting worse for the last fifty years, very visibly, uh, three years. COVID and Black Lives Matter and all that very visibly, 50 years, very visibly. Uh, You can argue 130 to 170 years, and you could argue even all the way to maybe 300 years, um, you know, 350 years to the Enlightenment. Um, Okay. So yeah, we're, we're, um, we're, we're in a bad spell right now. (laughs) We've lost a few battles, (laughs) but again, that's, uh, that's part of the world, not the whole world. And that's part of history. We've got 2000, Years of history since that seed. Jesus talks about seed must first die before it can and be and be planted in the ground before it can. Jesus died and he was planted in the belly of the earth in the tomb. He was buried like mm-hmm. a seed. Um, and and in the last two thousand years, even if you count the last three hundred and fifty years as as um, some pruning and branches, you know, dying and falling off and those, still that's three hundred and fifty out of two thousand. I like. Would you rather be alive today or two thousand years ago? Is the world better today? Lifespans are longer. Uh, poverty has gone down globally across across the planet. In every nation, there's um, that you know the um, the quality of life is higher. Medicine um, is is better. Um, less people die in infancy. Less women die die in childbirth. Um, well, there's wars and rumors of wars. Yeah, there, there's always wars and rumors of wars. Um, but in terms of actual wars being fought. Um, yeah, that, that's going on. But there were times where every nation in, in, on the planet, in the known world, was all, all fighting at the same time endlessly. You know, it, the fact that we actually have long periods, decades of peace um, in large swaths of the globe, um, all these things are remarkable. And it's, and it's the result of the Christian faith. And, and as Christendom is currently on a decline because of apostasy and rejection of of Christ, uh, we're, we're seeing things get worse. Um, but, but to pretend, I think people pretend as though it's just been this downward spiral for 2000 years. Um, if it was a downward spiral from first century Palestine as the starting place, and then a 2000 year downward spiral from there, then, then we, we just, we'd all, we'd be living in hell right now that, you know, the fact that things are as good as they are, that we have full bellies and many of us have healthy children and all the the, the things that we live in air conditioned homes and all the, you know, health insurance that that's because from the death, burial and resurrection of Christ, we had a massive upspike of victory for 1700 years. And yeah, we're, we're, 
we're taking a couple steps back right now, but uh, that is not the headline of the story. And I think we just, we get so focused on our little corner of earth and our little lifetime, mm-hmm. you know, instead of looking at the whole planet, what God's been doing over the whole of, of human history and especially church history the last 2000 years. And we, um, our footnote um, is, is placed as, as God's headline, uh, but it's not, it's not God's headline. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, Anyways. absolutely. I've had many similar conversations with friends over the past couple of years because that is, uh, again, the emotional argument is, you know, look how look how bad things are or, you know, drag queen story hour or, you know, right. um, or whatever, you know, and you, you said it very well. Um, I actually my argument sounds almost exactly like yours. Um, you know, if you think things are bad now, read the Old Testament. I mean, read what right. kind of things that people had to deal with, the kind of the brutality um, and uh, the way that, you know, uh, just the, the imminent threat that was there at all moments of time that David had to deal with. I mean, you read the Psalms, and I think that's one reason why we struggle to understand the imprecatory Psalms is we haven't had to deal with what David dealt with because things are way better now. Um, and actually, remember thinking about this, uh, actually, just before COVID happened, because I think, honestly, I think COVID has almost helped a lot of, hasn't almost, mm-hmm. I think it has helped a lot of Christians yeah. understand the imprecatory Psalms a little more because it was kind of a taste of, you know what, like things could get, things could get bad. We are on the verge of, you know, civilization as we know it kind of hangs much more tenuously than we think it does. Because I remember thinking before COVID just about what an anomaly in history it's been, the comfort and the peace we've enjoyed in the West. Mm. Um, and just, I had this weird feeling, I'm not saying it was a, you know, prophecy or premonition or anything like that, but I remember having this thought of like, how long can this last? You know, how long can this, um, this, 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 this peace and the security last? Because I live with such security compared to everybody else throughout history. And then COVID came, it was kind of like, yeah, I mean, it can, it can end fast. Um, and of course there was enough pushback with COVID, but, um, when you saw things break down, actually, I, I have a Christian friend of mine. Um, I won't mention his name, but um, he was very anti-death penalty before COVID. Um, <laughs> you know, and uh, and now I was just talking to him a few weeks ago, and he's yeah, he's very very upset about the whole thing, as 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 Christians should be. And uh, he, I said, "So are you still against the death penalty?" He's like, "No, not at all. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, um, in fact, not only would I like to see him hang, I'd like to see him squirm." I was like, mm-hmm. whoa, you know, but I mean, I, I understand where he's coming from because after a fair trial, of course, but after yeah, a fair trial, of course, but yeah, fair it, trial, it, but then, yeah, yeah. I, I would, and that's good for society that that should be justice should be public. And so, yeah, society right. should be able to watch uh, those who have put us through hell. People lost their businesses, their livelihood. Um, people lost, I mean, their, their parents died in nursing homes and they were looking at them through glass windows and couldn't even give them a hug goodbye. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, people, well, black people lives matter, right? It outside. Yeah. That's right. I mean, my yeah. blood's, so people, my blood's starting to boil should, just thinking about it, Joel. So oh, totally. Yeah. People, people <laughs> should hang and, and we should be able to see the white leave their eyes and, um, you know, and, and we should be able to watch that and praise God for his glorious justice. Uh, and it should just be done justly with a fair trial. But yeah, 100%. And, and yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable thing to, to, to talk about and to think about. But then this is another thing I've been wrestling with, with the Psalms, uh, reading through the Psalms, because, you know, you read a passage and you're like, oh, that's, that's a tough pill to swallow. But then I have to stop and think, why does this make me uncomfortable? 
why does this passage, is this passage make me uncomfortable because it contradicts scripture? Or does this passage make me uncomfortable because of just the assumed Christian-ish culture that I grew up in? You know what I mean? Like, where do these, where do these ideas come from that make me uncomfortable with, you know, a Psalm 58? By the way, Psalm 58 is all about unjust rulers. So that was a fascinating, Mm -hmm. (laughs) fascinating Psalm to study and write through because uh, David basically taunts the rulers at the beginning. Uh, do you really speak what's just you rulers? No, um, you know, you deal out violence. Uh, you know, this is what you do. And then David prays this prayer against them that they be removed. Um, and there's some really strong language in there, but it's basically a psalm that's basically prayed against wicked rulers, like God, remove them, take them down, take them off their throne, remove wicked rulers because they are, it'd be, it'd be loving to our neighbors to pray for these rulers to be removed, right? right. Um, but anyway, um, the whole point being, I think COVID kind of gave us a taste of just how bad things could get if, if you know, if, if the government really had no check and things got out of hand. And also, um, sorry, I lost the train of thought I was going to say, but um, yeah, anyway, uh, you, can, you can probably cut well, Just part, realizing but, like how, how long can this... Um this season yeah. of peace, security, and prosperity last, and then just realizing that, um, yeah, it really is, uh, the foundation is Christ. And it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of like what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 11, like, do not be arrogant. You do not support the root. The root supports you. Um, and so mm-hmm. just recognizing that these are the blessings of God. The blessings of liberty um, are the blessings of God's law. James says that uh, God's law is, um, we think of this as an irony, as a contradiction, um, but in the mind of God, uh, one dot, there's a straight line to the next. Uh, God's law is the law of liberty. And as mm-hmm. we uh, become antinomian and, um, and hate and spurn God's law, uh, we, we don't get cast off constraints. You know, like Psalm chapter 2, the rulers of this world, they try, seek to break the bonds apart. Rather than uh, gaining freedom and casting off religious constraints, uh, what we actually do is we uh, we quickly erode and uh, and evaporate liberties. And apart from those liberties and the opportunities mm-hmm. provided from them, um, there there goes prosperity and um, stability and security. And uh, yeah, you know the the old adage is you know at any point we're only I think it's uh, nine meals away from anarchy. You know, it's, it doesn't take much mm-hmm. uh, yeah. for, for all of a sudden um, a prosperous place to, to become hell on earth. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden the imprecatory Psalms made perfect sense. Um, and I was remembering you know, what I was about to say. I think I was even sharing this with some unbelievers recently. Uh, I was actually, somehow I got into a conversation about the imprecatory Psalms. Well, because I put them to music. So, you know, that was one thing that came up. Uh, was someone actually asked me, why is the God of the Old Testament so different from the New? And of course, I kind of walked him through, well, he really isn't. You know, here's here's where he shows his love in the Old Testament. Here's where he shows his wrath in the New. I was talking to the unbelievers, and I was trying to say, yeah, there are some tough passages to swallow in the Psalms. There are some things in there where people literally pray for other people to die. Like, that's the kind of music I do. What kind of music do you guys do? And um, I said, you know, Everybody has those things that really make their blood boil, right? And I think sometimes that can be different for all of us. You know, like for some, for me, it's government tyranny. Like government tyranny just absolutely makes my blood boil. It's just like, I'm like, 
no mercy, go get him, you know, and, and almost gets to like almost an ungodly place of anger, you know, like that's what makes blood, blood, my blood boil. And some people will say like, it's, you know, child abuse that really, oh man, like I just, you know, fry him. You know what I mean? So like everybody has those things that make their blood boil. So everybody understands the imprecatory Psalms. No one should sit in judgment of them because when we feel our blood boil that I think I think that's rooted in this desire to see justice done when something really wrong takes place. So yeah. I think everybody does it. And, it's, and when I said that, they were like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I have things that make my blood boil. So it would make sense that I would, you know, pray for judgment upon those people because I yeah. kind of do, you know. Right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I think one of the reasons why evangelical American Christians um, have had no category for imprecatory psalms is uh, – because for a long time, I think we've kind of, uh, a lot of things haven't made our blood boil, um, because yep. we've That's been right. complacent, you know, like, um, what makes David's blood boil is, um, is the wicked. Um, I think the closest that you can think of for a lot of the big Eva types, Beth Moore, Russell Moore, Tim Keller, Rick Warren, um, the closest that you can think of, of these individuals, um, getting angry, like what sets them off? What's their pet peeve? What makes their blood boil? Uh, the biggest thing that makes their blood boil is uh, Bible-believing Christians, actually. Hmm. There's no better way to make Beth more upset than to quote scripture. There's no better way to, uh, to anger Russell more uh, than to love scripture and teach hmm. scripture. Um, so I think evangelicals for a long time haven't understood imprecatory psalms, at least imprecatory psalms targeting the wicked according to God's standards of righteousness and wickedness um, because we haven't loved righteousness and we haven't mm-hmm. hated sin. Um, if anything, uh, we hate anybody who talks about sin because we think it's legalism. I, 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 just, I guess what I'm saying is I, I think anger at wickedness, anger at evil, the first prerequisite um, is that you actually have to have a standard for deciphering between good and evil. And Mm -hmm. that's the law of God. And so I think for as long as as American evangelicalism has been antinomian and has rejected the law of God for at least that long, uh, likewise, we have consequently Uh, We have not understood imprecatory psalms. We don't understand proper anger because we don't understand properly what we should be angry about and who we should be angry towards because we've gotten rid of the standard. And so evangelicalism has been anti-law for decades, for decades. Don't preach at me. That's legalism. Uh, That's the law of God. That was fulfilled by Christ, not, not understanding God's moral law, not understanding its application, not understanding um, any of those things. And so um, the third use of the law, that the law is not just, it's not just a mirror that reveals to me the holiness of God and by way of consequence my sinfulness and therefore drives me to Christ, shows me my need for a Savior. But the third use of the law that David delights in is that the law is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light unto my path, not showing me the way to salvation. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Um, But the law shows us the way from salvation into further sanctification. It's it's not a way to be saved. No man will be saved by works as done unto the law. Um, But for the one who has been saved by free grace in Christ through faith alone, then then 
our response is is not trying to merit God's love, but having freely received it, we're now responding in gratitude with love for him. First John 4:19, we love because he first loved us. Well, if God loves us in Christ through the free gospel of grace and opens our eyes to it and gives us new hearts to receive his salvific love in Christ through faith, then we now, as a response, irresistible grace, we now love him back. But then the very next question is, how do I show you my love for you, God? Jesus answers the question. If you love me, you will obey. Obey what? Commands. There are there are commands. And and so it's not just here's the law of God so that you'll know that you're a sinner and that you need him. But it's also that that's true. That's the first use of God's law drives us to Christ. But having received Christ now freely by grace through faith, we now love God as a response, not loving him, trying to merit his love for us, but loving him as a response of gratitude because he already loves us freely in Christ. But if we love him, it goes back to that definition of highest love, highest good, and practical, tangible ways. Um, well, if we love Christ, that's going to be demonstrated through our obedience. Does he have any commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, how do I love the Lord my God? What, get a little bit more specific. What does that look like? Have no other gods mm-hmm. before me. Do not make any graven images. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Like, how do I love my neighbor? Well, don't murder him. You can start you know, with that. You can also honor your father and mother, your first neighbors when you come into the world. Don't steal from your neighbor. Don't commit adultery. Don't uh, bear false witness against your neighbor. Lie about your neighbor and don't covet what your neighbor has. Has envy, you know, which is the root of all kinds of social justice. And so, mm-hmm. all that being said, um, when the evangelical church rids itself of God's law, um, and because because they they think that somehow the law um, is is uh, that, that it's either grace or the law, and that you have to choose one or the other, and and they have a mis understanding of grace it's cheap grace and they have the misunderstanding of of law and what it looks like for jesus to fulfill all the law but to abrogate ceremonial law while not abrogating not one jot or tittle the law of all the law will be passed away so really you could even say in a sense that the ceremonial law i would argue as rush dooney and others have that the ceremonial law even endures forever but christ has fulfilled Hmm. the ceremonial law so uniquely that it never has to be done we still need sacrifices um the reason why we don't bring bulls and goats and lambs to church on Sunday to cut them open on the altar and let their blood ro- ro- roll down um, is not because God changed his mind. Behold, I am the Lord. I changeth not so that you, the sons of Jacob, are not consumed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Um, there is, Hebrew says, there is no atonement. There is no forgiveness of sins apart from blood. So we still need sacrifices. We still need blood. Um, but Jesus fulfilled the ceremonial aspects of the law so fully um that there's no more sacrifices needed he was the lamb of god who took away the sins of the world is the perfect so we still need blood but his is sufficient Uh, we still need hand hand washing and and certain cleansing rituals and things but jesus has washed us so thoroughly that that Mm. you know we we don't have to do those kinds of things anymore so and all these kinds of ways um but 
the way that he's fulfilled the moral law of God, if we do use those categories, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, don't murder, don't steal, uh, Jesus has fulfilled that too. Otherwise, we'd still be dead in our sins and all going to hell. So Jesus, mm-hmm. he, uh, you know, by, by not just his passive obedience, dying in our place as a substitute, but his active obedience, living in our place. He didn't just die in our place, but he lived in our place, um, fulfilling, not just avoiding all sin and maintaining innocence, but fulfilling all righteousness. So he perfectly obeyed the moral law of God on our behalf. So Jesus fulfilled this and that's, and that's integral to our salvation. Um, but, but he, uh, that, um, the, the Christian response to Christ's fulfillment of the moral law um, is that we too want to obey the moral law as a response of gratitude and a display of our love for him. Whereas um, if we tried to fulfill the ceremonial law, that would actually um, demonstrate a lack of love and a lack of faith, more particularly, um, in the sufficiency of uh, that he is the one and only lamb of God. And how do we know this? Because scripture tells us. Hebrews says there's no forgiveness of sins apart from blood. But then it also says that the blood of bulls and goats. So blood is the only way sin's forgiven, but the particular blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. So sin is taken away by blood, but it's the blood of Christ. And we know that Hebrews tells it, but Hebrews does not have a verse that says, oh, and also uh, now, now murder's on the table. Oh, and, and you know, theft is like, no, the moral law is spoken in very different, very different ways. But all this, you know, doctrine of the law, it's, uh, I think a big part of it is we've lost confessionally reformed theology. Mm-hmm. Um, we've, we've, we, we, uh, it's like we, we've just, I don't know, maybe lib- rise of liberalism and all these kinds of things. What, you know, it's, what happens is, is you're like, we're under attack. There's no way we can, we, we can win. We're outnumbered. And so let's all, you know, let's fall back, fall back from the outer wall, you know, and, and there's only, you know, 12 of us left and let's link arms and defend, you know, and, and when you feel like you're outnumbered, it's like, okay, you, you know, like if your house is on fire, you, you, you grab the kids and maybe you grab, you know, one priceless possession, you know, but you, you, you can't save it all. It's time is of the essence. You just, you know, you have to, you have to prioritize and triage and you, we can only defend a few things. And I think the church doctrine is like, well, primary, is it a gospel issue, brother? Is it a gospel issue? Is it, a, and ironically, a lot of these actually were gospel issues, but, and, and so you defend, well, the, the incarnation, you know, and, and you defend uh, bodily resurrection, you defend, and it's like, uh, you know, but 85 pages of the 1689, you know, or the Westminster, uh, well, can't defend all that, you know, and, and then you just stop, you stop defending it. And if you stop defending it, you mm-hmm. stop preaching it, you stop teaching it, people stop learning it. Yeah. And then all of a sudden we're, we're, we're just theologically ignorant. Um, we're, we're just theologically ignorant about these kinds of law things. And if you don't understand all the way back to the original point, if you don't understand the standard, the moral standard of God's transcendent universal law, then you don't know what's good and you don't know what's evil, which means you, you don't know what to be angry at. You don't know what to be angry at. And so then an imprecatory psalm um, being sung about true evil, the true wicked, uh, when when you actually think those are the good guys and and the truest evil person is, you know, Doug Wilson, Voldemort in the flesh, you know, or who, you know, whoever. So John MacArthur, that's evil, you know, and, and, you know, that trans person who shot up a school, you know, that they're actually just a victim, you know, we should love them. And, and you, you just, it's so backwards. So when, when a church prays one of the imprecatory Psalms over um, a, a transgender person who shoots up a school, you're like, you're being harsh, you're being, and it's, because you just you just you're so undiscipled, so biblically illiterate, so foolish, so ignorant um, that it, it would it would take days 
I mean, I would literally have to talk to you 24 hours for a week straight from the word of God, just, just for you to have just the, just the, the, um, the handles, just, just the, the categories to even begin to understand what's going on. You're just, we're just so dumb. The evangelical church is just so dumb. Uh, it's, it's, it's overwhelming. Yeah, Anyways. that you kind of touched on a couple of things that are a huge part of my uh, journey with the Psalms. Uh, number one is, you know, over and over again, again, as you are, I am not censoring the Psalms. I'm not, you know, trying to make them palatable for modern evangelicalism. You run across things where you're like, am I really going to sing this? You know, and what I've had to come to grips with is, you know, the first instinct you have, I mean, the first instinct I had when I came across these passages is, well, you know, I'm sitting in judgment of them. I'm going to decide which ones I'm going to. And that's what a lot of Christian artists do actually with the Psalms is let's see what in this Psalm is acceptable to sing and let's take out the rest. I mean, that happens a lot um, with the Psalms. And so I came to this point where I was like, I don't judge the Psalms. I don't sit in judgment of God's word. God's word sits in judgment of me. So if God's word says things that don't align with, you know, my cultural sensibilities or where I come from, then I need to see how my cultural sensibilities and my evangelicalism is out of line with God's word. Why is that the case? So that's been a powerful thing to just submit to that and say, you know what, maybe my idea of what mean is and what my idea of loving is, maybe... I haven't been taught that exactly correctly. And maybe the word of God actually teaches that correctly. Like C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis says, love is something much more severe than kindness. You know, we tend to equate love with kindness. No, love is something much more severe than that and something mm-hmm. much more intense and meaningful than that. Kindness can actually be mean, as C.S. Lewis says, you know. Um, and then also just writing these songs they sound so different than modern worship songs. I mean, the difference is so stark. You would hear it. I mean, you would hear one of these songs uh, that we do, and within a few seconds, you would recognize this is not a modern worship song. This will never be on Christian radio, and this is from the scripture. It just has a different tone to it. It has a different power to it. It's, It's the word of God, obviously. So that being said, you can't help when I'm composing these psalms and you know we, these 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 glorious arrangements that my musicians come up with, and you're listening to this music, you're like, wow, it's hard not to think what happened. Why why is our worship music so uh, so so uh, devoid of this? Where'd it go? What happened? And I think it speaks a lot of what to what you said. We are ashamed of the law. Uh, we're ashamed of you know. Uh, we're ashamed of God's word, essentially. Uh, we've decided that what Jesus said about these issues, we're only going to focus on these passages out of context, and we're going to throw out everything else. And so some of the Psalms don't align with that, so they've got to go. We're not going to read them. We're not going to sing them. We're not going to touch them. I mean, I didn't hear a sermon on an imprecatory Psalm till I was 33 years old, maybe, where a pastor finally taught on Psalm 139, and I was like, Thank you for actually teaching on Psalm 139, right? Like, I didn't think anyone had the guts to even touch that. But the point being, I think we have sat in judgment of the scriptures in evangelicalism. We've decided this is what, you know, we're, we're, we've decided this is what is acceptable and, you know, this is what's not. And we have not let it judge and examine us, which is what mm-hmm. it's for. 
And it has really changed my view of what love is, what kindness is, what winsomeness is, you know what I mean? Um, uh, Because you see, David, he's not very winsome in Psalm 58 towards these rulers. They are causing real damage and they need severe discipline. And um, also, what happened to us? Where where did this stuff go and why is it not in our worship music? Uh, I've, I've found that very, very interesting as to why, you know, modern worship songs will take they'll take little snippets of the psalm but i mean there's so much in the psalms that is not in our music um, or not in the music of i should say modern evangelicalism and it's sad it's it's a tragedy yeah amen well uh shane let's go ahead and wrap it up here again how how can people follow you what's the name of the project exactly how, how do they look it up yeah so we are the psalms project so probably the best thing to do is to go to our website, which is thepsalmsproject.com. So it's pretty simple to remember. And there you can listen to our music. You can join our Psalms Project community, which is essentially our email list, which is a great way to stay caught up on all our new releases and all our new music. Uh, we're releasing new lyric videos all the time. And at the website, you can also go and listen to us on any platform, Spotify, Apple Music, however you listen to music. Uh, we do sell CDs. People still listen to CDs. Would you believe that? We ship CDs out of our house every day. It's crazy. Uh, people still buy downloads, so we sell downloads. Right now, we have set the first 46 psalms to music in their entirety. That took 10 years because it's quite a recording process, and I actually have a different lead singer on every psalm. We wanted to get each give each psalm its own voice, so we have a variety of vocalists. Uh, we want to do things excellently. So we, I wanted the very best vocalists, the very best musicians, the very best sound engineers, the very best producers on this project. So we've worked with over 80 different musicians uh, on this project so far, uh, including uh, Phil Keggy. He actually made an appearance. You might know who Phil Keggy is yeah. uh, on a couple of tracks. And so you can, yeah, you can listen on Spotify. Look us up as The Psalms Project. That's the artist's name on Spotify, Apple Music. Uh, we're on YouTube. So yeah, any way you listen to music, you can find that in our website, but please uh, sign up for our email list. Uh, and the very best thing to do would be to go to our Patreon page. It's the patreon.thepsalmsprojectmusic. So patreon.thepsalmsprojectmusic. And that's a great way to support our work because I do do this full time and we do not have a major label behind us, obviously. <laughs> we don't have a marketing machine behind us. I am the marketing department. I, I'm everything. So uh, we are totally listener supported by people who love God's word and who want, who believe in this project, who believe that this is something Christendom needs right now is beautiful music, artistic music composed to the pure word of God. And so that's, we're supported by right now, hundreds of people around the world, but we can always use more supporters because it's a very, taxing and expensive and as you can imagine very epic project putting entire psalms to music uh our longest so far is psalm 18 it's 50 verses that was a fun one um mm. but it's it's just fun to see all the things that that psalm cycles through because you get to see all of it it's so glorious and then mm. psalm 37 is also quite long at 40 verses but um two of my favorites for sure psalm 18 and psalm uh 37 but um, i have a lot of favorites from those first 46 We've also put Psalm 91 and Psalm 121 to music in addition to those first 46. But right now we are recording what's for us, Volume 6, which is Psalms 47 through 55. 
And we just, I'm happy to report by God's grace, we just successfully completed a successful crowdfunding campaign to fund that album. But we could always use more listeners, more fans, and more supporters sharing this because Christians are looking for good, artful, biblical music to listen to. And I want everyone to know that we're here, we're out there. Yep, that's great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. And I hope that uh, some of our listeners take you up on that. It's a worthy project. And uh, I pray that God would continue to give you strength to, uh, to complete that project in your lifetime. If it took you 10 years to get through 46 Psalms, especially when you got Psalm 110, Psalm 118, Psalm 119, uh, some of those coming up, then uh, it, you know, 46 Psalms is about a third of the way, but some of them in terms of their length, you could argue that maybe you're only a quarter of the way. And so, uh, so you may have 30 years left to go. So you, you need, uh, you need some dedicated supporters to, <laughs> to stand with you for another two, three decades. Yeah, so. that, that's well. That's well said, Joel. Yep, I, about yeah. ten more years we should be finished with the right support. But yes, hey, thank you for there your you prayers. go. Yes, well, that's perfect. All right, thanks for coming on the show. God bless. Thanks, Joel. See you later. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're going to want to hear this. Our next two conferences are coming up quick. We've got first our fall conference. This is November 11th and 12th. That's a full day Saturday and a holdover for the Lord's Day, November 12th. Uh, Who's speaking at this conference? Well, we've got Jared Longshore and... Chris Wiley, and yours truly, Pastor Joel Webbin. What's the title? The title is The Household and the War for the Cosmos. Now, I know you're thinking, wait a second, you can't use that title, Joel. That's the title for Chris Wiley's book. Well, I can use it because he's going to be there speaking, and he gave me his permission. We're going to be talking about the household as the basic building block for pushing back the kingdom of darkness in this world. We're going to be talking about biblical patriarchy. We're going to be talking about marriage and parenting parenting, how to keep your kids, how to shape and form them like straight arrows, like sharp arrows that do damage to the kingdom of darkness, training our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. A full day on Saturday, November 11th, and then holding Jared Longshore over for the Lord's Day, November 12th, to preach at my church, Covenant Bible Church, in Central Texas. You can register at the early bird rate, which will not last long, but you can register at the early early bird rate today by going to rightresponseconference.com. Again, that's rightresponseconference.com. Now, our second conference is our spring conference. This is Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. The title for this conference, Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. We don't want to revert back to Christendom 1.0, although it would certainly be a whole lot better than the clown world that we're currently living in. But we recognize, despite the phenomenal features of a prior Christendom, there were certain bugs that we'd like to see worked out. So we're not going back. We are pushing forward to Christendom 2.0. We believe that the blueprints are seven doctrines for ruling the world righteously. What are these seven doctrines? Well, it's reformed confessionalism. It's covenant theology. It's biblical patriarchy. It's presuppositionalism and Kuyperianism and general equity theonomy and hopeful eschatology post-millennialism. Who's going to be teaching us on these doctrines? Voldemort, 
he who must not be named, Pastor Douglas Wilson himself. You also got Mr. Bright Hearth, Mr. Kings Hall, Mr. Haunted Cosmos, Pastor Brian Sauvé. And we also have Dr. Joseph Boot and, of course, yours truly, Pastor Joel Webbin. We'll be doing seven primary lectures as well as two 90-minute panels with all the speakers together, and we'll likely add a couple more speakers along the way. Again, that's March 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. It's Blueprints for Christendom 2.0. We've got the early bird rate going right now, but it will run out quickly. So go to rightresponseconference.com, rightresponseconference.com to register today.